0: and welcome to the very first episode of the Celluloid 70s podcast, a podcast celebrating the films of the most fascinating and pivotal decade in Western cinema. I'm Ali and I'm going to be taking you on a journey through the best and occasionally the worst of 1970s cinema to see what was on offer for film fans during this time, who and what exactly were they watching and how did all of that shift and change as the decade progressed. So the way this is going to work is that each series will be devoted to one whole year of the decade, starting here in series one with the year 1970. And each episode will then focus on a particular genre, theme, star, or other random grouping device I might see fit at the time. Now to keep the brief manageable and to make sure we're not just focusing on a predictable list of the same old Hollywood movies, I'm going to be basing the watch list on movies chosen by their UK cinema release dates. So that means I'll be talking exclusively about the films available to British cinema goers between January 1970 and December 1979. This of course means there will be plenty of enjoyable nostalgia on this audio road trip through the decade as I revisit old favourites, blockbusters and award winners but we'll also veer off onto the occasional side road to enjoy some of those rarely seen 70s movies. And I'll be taking the occasional pit stop to celebrate the work of the actors, directors, composers, cinematographers, and studios that I feel deserve recognition for their contribution to 70s cinema. So while I can't promise you a damn fine cup of coffee every week, there will be plenty of lukewarm tea and you can get a lovely slice of cherry pie at The Little Chef. Okay, are you still in? Terrific. Let's get started because I've got a great lineup of films for you this week. I'm especially excited to be launching the podcast at this, the most wonderful time of the year, October, aka spooky season. So what better place to start than with some classic British Hammer horror? Hammer Studios released six films in the UK in 1970, and this week we're going to be talking about two of them. Taste the Blood of Dracula, and Crescendo. But before we dive in, here's a quick primer on the history of Hammer's journey from purveyors of quota quickies to masters of horror. Before we talk about this week's movies, let's take a brief look at the history of Hammer films and how they became the celebrated home of British horror. In November 1934, a successful businessman and failed comedian named William Hines set up a film finance company called Hammer Productions Limited, using his stage name, Will Hammer, as inspiration. Soon after this, he was introduced to cinema owner and film distributor Enrique Carreras, and in 1936, they launched a film distribution company named Exclusive Films. However, it wasn't the best time to be embarking on new ventures in the British film industry. Due to a combination of rising industry costs and disappointing US box office returns, of the 640 film production companies registered in the UK at that time, 620 had folded by 1937 and Hammer Productions sadly became one of them. Although exclusive films managed to survive the turmoil of not only this blow to the British film industry, but the greater shock to come two years later, when Europe was plunged into war. Finding themselves at a loose end after being demobbed at the end of the war, Heinz and Carreras' sons, Tony Hines and James Carreras, joined exclusive films and soon found themselves busy. Film going had become a hugely popular pastime amongst the post-war British public, And it wasn't long before exclusive films found they just couldn't source enough new content to distribute to UK cinemas. James Carreras, with true entrepreneurial spirit, realised that the solution was to supply this ever-growing demand themselves. And thus Hammer Films was brought back from the dead to act as the film production arm of exclusive, with plans to capitalise on the post-war demand for quota quickies short cheap UK films which could be used to bolster the cinema schedules and act as supporting features for bigger attractions. Hammer released their first production, Death in High Heels, a murder mystery set in a Bond Street fashion house in 1947 and pretty soon they were busily producing around five movies a year, mostly in the genres of suspense dramas and mystery thrillers. Carreras and Hines realised early on that it's easier to draw audiences to familiar characters so they also began securing the rights to popular BBC radio series like The Adventures of PC-49, Life with the Lions, and Dick Barton's Special Agent. They began to turn their eye to adapting BBC TV properties when Tony Hines watched The Quatermass Experiment on television and immediately realised its cinematic potential. Directed by Val Guest, Hammer's film adaptation of the series was released in 1955 and it was a huge success. Already well-practiced in turning successful films into franchises, as they'd done with their other BBC adaptations, Hammer released their next successful science fiction horror film, the strongly Quatermass-adjacent X the Unknown, the following year. And that filled in the gap nicely until an official Quatermass sequel, Quatermass 2, could be released in 1957. And while that proved to be another great success for Hammer, there was a far more influential film of theirs which would hit the cinema screens the same year and change the course of the company's future forever hammer realized that they'd hit box office gold with the horror genre and this encouraged them to shift their focus away from mysteries and thrillers and heed the message being sent by the audience all they needed now was another good original script and fate was surely on their side when the screenplay which would change the course of the studio's future fell into their hands. The script had recently been rejected by an American production company, which Hammer had begun working with, and who passed the script on to Hammer, thinking it may suit them better. The script had come from a couple of young filmmakers called Milton Sabotsky and Max Rosenberg. And if those names are familiar to you, then fear not, we will definitely be hearing more from those gentlemen in a future episode. The plot was a reworking of the original Frankenstein story. Based heavily on the old Universal horror movie, but by all accounts, Sabotsky and Rosenberg's script needed a lot of work and had therefore struggled to find a home. But Hammer could see potential in the concept, and eventually, after rewriting, a name change, and even some legal wrangling with Universal, The Curse of Frankenstein went into production, with a cast and crew who would soon pass into filmmaking legend as members of Hammer Studios' very own unofficial repertory company. Peter Cushing was cast as Baron Frankenstein, with Christopher Lee as the creature, and Hammer regular director Terence Fisher using his modest budget to tremendous effect to produce Hammer's first classic gothic horror film, with the vivid red Kensington Gore shown in full Eastman colour for the very first time. And while the critics, and indeed the censors at the BBFC, may have had more than a few reservations about the film's content and visuals. The same couldn't be said for the cinema audiences of 1957, who flocked to their local flea pits to revel in the ghastly delights of The Curse of Frankenstein and make it a smash hit in the UK and beyond, one which went on to generate six sequels. And while The Curse of Frankenstein was delighting audiences, Hammer were already working on their next big project, their own take on Bram Stoker's horror classic, Dracula. Shooting began in 1957, with Cushing and Lee teamed up again as Dr. Van Helsing and Count Dracula, respectively, with Terence Fisher once again at the helm. And upon release in the summer of 1958, Hammer realised they had another smash hit on their hands. Hammer, and in particular Christopher Lee's chilling yet seductive portrayal of the Count, had succeeded spectacularly in stamping their own twin-fanged mark on Bram Stoker's classic story, making it their own and attracting huge audiences around the world. As well as producing eight sequels to Dracula, Hammer went on to produce cinematic updates on other classic Universal horror monsters like The Mummy and The Phantom of the Opera. This was after Universal transferred the rights to their legendary horror catalogue to Hammer, in recognition of the much-appreciated cash injection they'd received as part of their distribution deal on Dracula's American release. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, Hammer maintained a steady output of new releases in various genres. Comedies, adventure movies, psychological thrillers, and even critically acclaimed war films. Though few of these achieved quite the same popularity as the horror films with which the name of Hammer was now inextricably linked. Hammer's films were often made back-to-back in and around the legendary Bray Studios with recycled sets and costumes to make better use of the infamously tight budgets and a talented roster of regular Hammer collaborators behind the scenes, such as art director Bernard Robinson, composer James Bernard and directors Freddie Francis and Terence Fisher, with Tony Hines in charge of production and James Carreras taking care of business. So now that we're pretty much up to date, Where do we find Hammer Studios in 1970? Well, just two years before, Hammer had been awarded the Queen's Award to Industry in recognition of their contribution to the British economy. But sadly, that success was already on the wane. Hammer Horror was struggling to find its place in the world of modern cinema. Contemporary horror filmmakers were increasingly moving away from the Gothic and were reflecting modern settings and situations often with a more psychological edge in films such as Rosemary's Baby. An audience is no longer needed to look to the horror genre for stronger content, as modern cinema was increasingly bold in its use of explicit violence and bloody gore across genres. Then, just as Hammer most needed a steady guiding hand to help it navigate a course through this changing world, Tony Hines made the decision to retire in 1969. Without his stewardship... Hammer seemed to lose a little focus, experimenting with new blood, so to speak, both in front of and behind the camera, and compensating for their inability to compete with American horror effects with an increased reliance on European-style titillation instead. The next few years would be spent sadly unsuccessfully trying to find ways to bring relevance and modernity to the genre, while turning to TV adaptations to help keep the studio lights on. But by 1970, it was all too clear that the best days of Hammer films, the home of British horror, were sadly over. Our first film this week is Crescendo, a film I don't mind admitting I'd never heard of until I started researching Hammer's output for 1970. It's a bit of a borderline horror at best, being one of the slightly Hitchcock-esque psychological thrillers that Hammer was producing at the time. But as tonight's two films were distributed as a double feature in June 1970, it seems sensible to talk about both of them in this episode and relive that double bill experience. Crescendo spent a few years in development hell before it finally made it to the big screen. The script was actually written in the mid-60s by Alfred Shaughnessy, who would later become much better known as the writer of landmark TV series Upstairs, Downstairs. The director of The Witchfinder General, Michael Reeves, was keen on this script, and he brought it to the attention of Hammer Films in '66. James Carreras then spent two years trying to get the film made, with Joan Crawford, but he couldn't raise the finance, and it wasn't until 1969 that the project was revived. With Hammer's regular scriptwriter Jimmy Sangster brought on board for a rewrite. Michael Reeves had tragically died the same year at just 25 years old, so Alan Gibson took over directing duties. And Crescendo was finally premiered in London in May 1970, going on general release in that double feature in June 70. The story centres on Stephanie Power's character, Susan Roberts, a graduate student researching a deceased composer whose family have invited her to spend the summer with them in France so she can access the composer's records. At first, she's welcomed with open arms by the composer's widow, played by Margaretta Scott, and son James Olson, a wheelchair user since losing the use of his legs in an accident. But it isn't long before things start to get a little bit weird. Her suitcase has mysteriously disappeared and she's forced to borrow some clothes from the house, but whose clothes are they? Where is the piano music coming from? What exactly is the relationship between James Olsen and the maid, played by Jane Lapidare? What was the nature of Olsen's accident? And is it anything to do with the family's chauffeur and general factotum Joss Ackland? Because frankly, he looks like he could snap someone over his knee like a twig at any moment. I don't want to go into too much more detail about the plot at this point, because it's exactly the kind of forgotten 70s movie that I was hoping to cover in this podcast. And I'm assuming most of you won't have seen it before. It's not so much because it breaks any new ground. In fact, I think many viewers will figure out what's going on here long before Stephanie Powers' character does, but I always think it's a treat to go into a film completely blind these days. The film features a strong debut film performance from Jane Lapater, some great lurking in a menacing way by Joss Ackland, and Stephanie Powers is always a likeable screen presence. But unfortunately, none of that was enough to make a dent in the box office where it underperformed significantly. But I will just mention that one interesting thing about the film that I realised while watching it, even though Crescendo has a contemporary setting, it scores surprisingly high on the Gothic content checklist. So much so that it inspired me to create a Gothic bingo card, and I'm going to share it in the show notes, on social media and on the website, and it's going to list those classic elements you would expect to find in a traditional Gothic narrative and Crescendo can tick off at least 10 out of the 12 items on that bingo card. I'll say no more than that at the moment because there's one classic gothic literature trope that's so core to the plot it would give the whole setup away if I named it. So at first glance, it may not look like what you would normally expect from a Hammer movie, but looks can be deceiving. (gasps) Is that a clue to another Crescendo plot point? Who can say? I'm going to suggest you don't get your hopes up too high for this one. The pace is a little slow. You don't want to prod the narrative logic too hard or it might just give way completely. And everything is all a little low-key and stagey. But if you've ever wondered what Mrs. Pumphrey from All Creatures Great and Small is capable of with a shotgun, this might be the film for you. Taste the Blood of Dracula is the first of five films that Ralph Bates starred in between 1970 and 72, during a period when the studio had its eye on Bates as a potential successor to Lee and Cushing. Christopher Lee had become increasingly reluctant to work with Hammer, especially once he got an inkling that his fee didn't exactly reflect the popularity of his films in America. So replacing him with a younger and cheaper actor represented a sensible move from Hammer's perspective but not so much for their US distributor Warner, who refused to back the film unless Hammer got Lee back on board. So given Lee's reluctance to star, and in what would be an all-too-familiar story going forward, this is a Dracula film with not too much actual Dracula in it. Taste the Blood of Dracula picks up where the previous film, Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, left off, with Christopher Lee's Dracula staked to death in the forest perhaps in an attempt to reassure us that the abortive reboot was not in fact going ahead and viewers could rest easy that they would get their fix of Lee. However, this film focuses on completely new characters. Three Edwardian gentlemen, their intertwined families, and how a chance encounter with a sinister aristocrat seals their fate. Jeffrey Keane, Peter Salis, and John Carson, here named Haggard, Paxton and Secker respectively, Play apparently respectable church-going gents. Hargood is a bit of a nasty piece of work, though. His daughter Alice, played by Linda Hayden, is in love with Paxton's son, played by Anthony Higgins. But Hargood's reaction to this seems somewhat extreme. Is it because, as we are about to discover, he knows Paxton Senior is not all he seems, or is it that Hargood himself has difficulty respecting the boundaries of his daughter as she reaches womanhood? Meanwhile, Paxton's daughter, played by Isla Blair, is in a relationship with Secker's son, played by Martin Jarvis. You remember I mentioned the families were intertwined. The younger generation see their parents as old and hidebound by outdated ideas about morality, while they are more carefree and liberated. But perhaps the truth of the matter is quite the opposite. Under the cover of charitable works, Haggard, Paxton and Secker regularly travel to London's East End to indulge their vices. And it's while visiting a backstreet brothel that they encounter the disgraced son of Lord Courtley, disowned by his father for conducting a black mass in the family chapel. Sensing a kindred spirit, the men dine with Courtley, played by Ralph Bates, and it's clear that, unlike these gentlemen, Courtley is no underworld dilettante, and his taste may run a little stronger than they have ever imagined. The three thrill-seeking gentlemen have experimented with all the usual vices, but now they find themselves bored and unfulfilled. Courtley figures this out very quickly and realises that they might be willing to pay a substantial sum for a true thrill, which would be very convenient because he is set on performing a satanic rite, but he's a little financially embarrassed right now after the whole being cut off business and is therefore no longer able to afford to purchase the occult objects he needs for the ceremony. A terrible bargain is struck. Hargard, Paxton and Secker will join courtly in his occult ritual and help him purchase the pricey bits of dark ephemera he apparently needs for it. And what exactly would these items be? Why no less than the dried blood, cloak and jewellery of Count Dracula himself. The rite is subsequently performed to the horror and trepidation of the three gentlemen who have realised at this point they are in way over their heads. Courtley collapses to the floor after, well, tasting the blood of Dracula actually as part of the ritual and the men, who at this point are terrified by him, seize their opportunity to kill Courtley and make good their escape. However, Courtley is resurrected as slash replaced by, by, I'm still a little bit hazy on the details, Count Dracula himself in the form of Christopher Lee. The Count is intent on avenging the murder of his servant by whatever means necessary, which bodes ill not only for the three thrill-seekers, but also for their children, who are targeted by Dracula as the tools for their destruction. There's a lot to enjoy in this film. I initially found the Edwardian London settings a bit jarring because I don't always associate Hammer Horror with characters who live in actual houses on real streets you could imagine living in yourself with pillar boxes on the corner. But the art direction on this film is a real treat. The interiors are really beautiful, as are the costumes, and there's some great use of location filming, including the notoriously spooky Swain's Lane area of Highgate Cemetery, which adds an extra gothic layer to proceedings. In fact, I just find the whole film visually really satisfying. Also, the use of the young actors is really interesting. Linda Hayden as Hargood's daughter Alice is just like a doll. She's so vulnerable and innocent looking. But her beauty isn't used in quite the way young female performers so often are in Hammer films. We're made to feel so uncomfortable about the way her father looks at and speaks to her that the film wisely avoids putting us in his shoes, By depicting her as an overtly sexual character. In fact, it's a really strong cast of young actors, and the love and friendship we see between the younger characters provides a stark contrast with the greed, hypocrisy, lust, arrogance, and hubris of their fathers. The idea of a rebellious youth actually turning out to be morally superior to their parents by trying to be their true selves rather than hiding behind a veneer of respectability must have been particularly appealing to younger viewers in 1970. And that's something I do appreciate about this film. It's not just about characters accidentally bumping into Dracula and shenanigans ensue. There's actually a little bit of social commentary thrown in. It's nothing groundbreaking. I'm sure it's not the first or last film you'll have seen in which Edwardian gentlemen are low-key pervy hypocrites. But those family tensions, particularly in the Hargood house, where uber-patriarch Geoffrey Keane is a controlling monster trying to crush his daughter's spirit the way he did with his wife, they add some extra dimensions to the good versus evil, Christian versus unChristian theme that you find at the foundation of all good Dracula tales. There's a scene where Alice is running in fear from her father through the garden, and she runs into Dracula which would normally be completely terrifying. A six-foot vampire is not something you want to stumble across in your shrubbery in the small hours. But in this case, you actually feel relieved on Alice's behalf that she might just be saved from an even more horrifying fate than an encounter with the Count. Even Dracula takes a moment to look at Hargood with utter disgust at this point. Dracula may be a vampire, but even he knows where to draw the line. Unlike Ralph Bates's Lord Courtley, we suspect the character who Hammer had been lining up as the Count's replacement. Because from the moment Courtley swoops into the brothel with a cape and a sneer at the start of the film, it's clear that he's something a little different. I imagine the idea in the original script was that the right with Dracula's blood was supposed to somehow imbue him with the spirit of the Count in the body of Bates. I'm not quite sure what the bigger picture was, but I assume Courtley was meant to represent one of those Hellfire Club style board aristocrats who throw in their lot with the dark arts, and I think Bates does a great job in this role. He just oozes arrogance, evil, and disdain. As part of the ritual, Courtly dons Dracula's cape, and it seemed like such a great symbolic passing of the baton that I can't help but feel just a little bit sorry that Bates didn't get to take over in quite the way Hammer had planned. You know, there are actually quite a lot of good points to this film. There's a great turn by Roy Kinnear, especially at the beginning of the film, where he's effectively cut into the ending of Dracula Has Risen from the Grave as a character who stumbles upon Dracula's final death throes and has the presence of mind to scoop up his belongings for future profit. He's effectively playing the same businessman character here as he does a year later in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But that's no criticism for me. I love Roy Kinnear. He's just such a reassuring presence on screen. He's one of those actors that make you feel like you're in safe hands. As indeed is Peter Salas, he's actually terrific in this film as Paxton, the only one of the thrill seekers who, A, seems to be able to actually enjoy himself, especially in the early brothel scenes, and B, is smart enough to realise that they are so far out of their depth, even though he does get coerced into going along with Courtley's plans. As always, Peter Salas is never not reacting. There's always a subtle or sometimes not so subtle micro-expression playing across his face and he's easily the most relatable of the gentleman hypocrites. His final scenes are more genuinely moving than I find is usual in Hammer Horror. He's just bringing his A-game all the way through. Not that this is a film of slackers though, this is a strong cast. Watch out for a very early appearance from Madeline Smith in the brothel scene and also a wonderful performance from Russell Hunter. Who to me will always be associated with the role of Lonely in the Edward Woodward series Callan, as the brothel keeper, looking somewhat inspired by the appearance of the MC role in the musical cabaret, and sporting a beautiful chiffon bow at the neck, which is giving a very strong Harry Styles vibe. I gather half of this role was cut by the US censors, and that is a terrible shame. Of course, that hammer stalwart Michael Ripper makes an appearance in the latter part of the film as the police detective confusingly even though he played an entirely different part in Dracula Has Risen from the Grave, which this film is a partial sequel to. Other Hammer regulars behind the scenes, aside from Tony Hines on script duties, include director of photography Arthur Grant, Hammer's most prolific DP, who sadly died just a couple of years after this film was released, producer Aida Young, who also produced Scars of Dracula and When Dinosaurs Ruled the World for Hammer this year, and composer James Bernard who I've just discovered was a former classmate of Christopher Lee at Wellington College, who knew. You may already know that Bernard liked to work the title of the film into the score, and he had his work cut out a little bit with this one, but you can hear it if you're listening out for it. This is actually a lovely score, and I particularly like the gentle fleet motif they use as Alice Hargood and Paul Paxton's love theme in their scenes together. New to the hammerfold is director Peter Sasti, Sazdi spent most of his career before and after this working in TV, but he did go on to direct some classic horror titles like Countess Dracula and Hands of the Ripper in 71, Doomwatch and the Stone Tape in 72 on TV and the legendary nonsense of I Don't Want to Be Born in 1975. Little wonder that after that he largely turned his back on horror and directed episodes of Minder and Adrian Mole instead. While I can't dodge it any longer, there's plenty about this film that doesn't work quite so well. The whole Courtley becomes Dracula scene is bizarre, confusing, makes no sense at all, and the effects are awful. For the most part, Tony Hines has done a pretty decent job of recalibrating his story to remove Courtley and reintroduce Dracula as the supernatural threat, but there are inevitably some slipped gears in the plot as a result. It's highly likely that I'm just a bit dim, but I couldn't get my head around which characters already knew each other. It seemed like people were having to introduce themselves when I felt that that shouldn't have been necessary. It's clear that Christopher Lee's heart really isn't in it. Variety's review of the film commented that Christopher Lee can now play Dracula in his sleep and in this pic looks occasionally as if he's doing so. And if anyone can explain exactly what happens in the final scene, I'd be very grateful. It's a fairly standard goodness-and-faith-defeats-evil-and-supernatural kind of setup, but it does seem more by luck than judgment that goodness wins, with a little too much deus ex machina thrown in. Heavy on the deus in this case. But on balance, I've got to say I really enjoy Taste the Blood of Dracula. It's got some actual heart, talented actors bringing nuanced and natural performances, and it actually looks like some money was thrown at it. Some may find it a little tame by modern standards, But rest assured, the film features enough boob and blood content to earn itself an X certificate. And just in case you're wondering where it scores on my gothic bingo card, it's a solid 11 out of 12. So if you haven't seen it before and classic gothic horror is your thing, then I genuinely recommend you put this one on your Halloween watch list and see what you think. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I hope you found something to enjoy and if so, maybe you'll consider liking and subscribing. You can find Celluloid 70s on the usual podcast places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. And there are accounts for the show on Facebook and Instagram. So if you know anyone who might enjoy this content, please let them know about Celluloid 70s and help spread the word. I hope you'll join me next time for another episode of Celluloid 70s the podcast that celebrates the films of the 1970s, whether they deserve it or not.